Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we're going to be discussing The Sign of the Beaver by Elizabeth George Spear. It was published in 1983 by Houghton Mifflin Company. We're going to start off with a citation um, from the Newberry and Caldecott Awards, A Guide to the Medal and Honor Books um, from 2009. Left alone in the Maine wilderness, Matt first loses his rifle and food and then is savagely stung by bees. Found by Sackness, chief of the beaver tribe, Matt is cared for in exchange for teaching the chief's grandson to read. As the boy's friendship develops, Matt gains an appreciation for the heritage and skills of the beaver tribe. And I'll continue um, with part of the citation from uh, Judith R. Kinman and Darwin L. Henderson's A Guide to Newberry Medal Winners and Honor Books, 1977-1984. Matt also realizes that there are problems with the ways the white man has taken over the Indian Territory. He begins to think there's another side to all the stories of Indians terrorizing the white settlers. The reason that I started reading this book in the first place um, when I was young, like much younger, was that I loved this author's other books, um, Calico Captive and The Witch of Blackbird Pond especially. Um, and this book I, I like a lot um, and I don't like a lot for different reasons. It's not as readable it's not as good a story to me as some of the others but also like as I got older I noticed how problematic it is in different ways but I still really like the story so I I do uh, excuse a lot just because when I was a kid I loved them I think this is this is hard and this is going to come up again and again as we go through the books um you know Native American characters and themes and stories are something that American children authors have been very into writing about. And the Newberry committees have been very into awarding awards for those. I was lucky enough when I was in library school about a decade ago to be introduced to a scholar um, by one of my library school teachers, um, Dr. Eliza Drissang. It was a children's lit class, and it was about authenticity in children's literature and about who has the right to write about what in children's literature. It was an excellent class and that was just part of it. But Dr. Jasang introduced me to a scholar named Debbie Reese who runs the American Indians and Children's Literature website. I followed her work not as closely as I would like over, um, over this past decade, but I do check in from time to time and I knew when we read this book that I would need to see what she said about it and what, what resources she had on her website. And I'll get to that in just a minute. I think one of the problems with this book is that the writing is so good. It is so good. And it, I think that her intent was good. Mm-hmm. Um, like she, from what I can tell, it sounds like she was approaching this as a, a historical fiction situation because it is based on a true story Mm -hmm. but her style of writing is gorgeous and it's so much fun to read it is and I think honestly I think if the story was just Matt in the woods by himself 
there wouldn't be a problem. No. And it and it seems well researched especially as far as like his lifestyle. Yeah, his lifestyle, I feel I completely buy it. I feel like um yeah, I feel like you know, we get to see Matt struggling, we get to see his day-to-day chores, we get to see what he has to eat, what he has at his fingertips for resources and skills. And I think those parts are just really well done. Um, aside, just even aside from the writing being really good writing, yes. um, the problems come in when we meet the beaver tribe. Um, yes. Yeah. So before we get into a bigger discussion of that, I'd like to read something from Debbie Reese's website. Um, it's American Indians and Children's Literature. She posted an essay from Students and Teachers Against Racism that is concerned with Sign of the Beaver. And I'm going to read a passage from this, and then I'll, I'll note the authors. Books that are written by whites about Indians virtually always, even with the best of intentions, stereotype Indian people. Many writers will defend their writing by saying that they've done considerable research. However, Unless the writer has had extensive contact with the specific tribe they're writing about, and preferably that tribe has approved it, the opinions formed by the writer can only be done from their own cultural perspective and often bias. In books that portray the past without historical accuracy and with disregard for the American Indian perspective of history, the ways of American Indians are often judged according to white standards of civilization rather than that from a position of respect for the culture they are depicting. Which and, I don't disagree with, mm-hmm. but I do think that this author was trying to be open-minded and have her characters be open-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, like they talk about treating them with respect and they talk about when he wakes up after they've been taking care of him mm-hmm. and he didn't know where he was and he was startled at first, but then he specifically says, you know, there was not what it was the exact phrase. There was nothing the least strange about this man who was taking care of him, the Mm -hmm. Indian who was taking care of him because he reminded him of his father. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are a lot of, like the texture is, if that makes sense, the texture of the book is a little problematic in that the way that she describes the Indian's way of life and the way that they talk especially is never questioned. Like that is just there and it's sort of stereotypical. It's very reductive. Yes, but... The message is good. Mm-hmm. I just think that sh- there is not that. I don't feel like the bridge is built between the intention and what actually ends up on the page. For example, I feel like one could make the argument that we're seeing Etienne and his tribe through Matt's eyes. And so it's going to be limited by Matt's ability and his intellect and what he knows about the situation. So I feel like that argument could be made, but I also feel like I can't quite accept that argument. For example, the way he talks about the white man that comes and steals his gun. Yes. Okay. He gives him a position, like an occupation. Mm-hmm. He taught. He postulates about his family life. He gives him very distinct qualities. Whereas, just baseline, at least the edition that I have 
ATN is just a brown smudge on the tree line on the cover. <laughs> well, that's true. But also, conversely, mm-hmm. like when he does meet that man, he feels obliged to like let him in and feed him and all that. But he makes him uneasy. Like he feels weird and it doesn't feel right. And he mm-hmm. just is totally sketched out and for good reason. And he specifically says later that like when he wakes up and even though he is with these people who he's been raised to distrust basically um he he had no inclination to lie to them the way that he had with the white visitor like he felt more comfortable with them automatically Mm -hmm. so i mean i get what you mean about the descriptive nature i well because i feel like often etienne and his family and his tribe are really described in very basic ways. So you have a really detailed description about ATN, ATN's um, loincloth when you first meet him. Yeah. And one, that feels icky because they're kids. I mean, it just, you know, it feels <laughs> icky because they're kids. It's like, but it also speaks to me about you know, Matt seeing these these people that have come to save him, very different from him, and he can categorize them using what he knows rather than just trying to see who they are. Yeah. Um, so it just seems reductive. And there's some other things in the in the text. Um, there's another post that Debbie Reese has that's from October in twenty seven. Um, sorry, two thousand seven. And um, I'll just go briefly over a couple of points that, you know, the use of the word squaw, which is very, very, you know, it's used in this book, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have been used in this region um, necessarily by this tribe. And it's kind of just using things that are kind of go to for Native American tribe representation and Native American representation that wouldn't have really fit with. So that's more of a failure of research. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. And, you know, I think that just starts to build up at, you know, it starts to build up. So you are, you know, these stories are actually creating and perpetuating lies and, you know, right. just wrongs. Um, so no one's really learning anything and they're just creating this kind of romantic vision of something that really is way more nuanced. And I think kids can handle nuance. Kids can handle nuance. And that's what bothers me, like, as I get older and I go back to the books that I loved when I was a kid that are still good stories that I still love to read. But, like, yeah, the nuance that's missing and the things that are wrong. But I do still think that where he's trying to overcome that bias um, is pretty explicit, which I like. Um, And especially the parallels that they're drawing – um, with um, Robinson Crusoe. Mm-hmm. Like that's so specific and how he's talking about um, Friday and the roles that they play. Um, and realizing how wrong that was. Yeah, and how yeah. things can be reversed. And they're, like, they're very clear about that. So I'm not exactly sure where this will fit in, but... Um, you know, the, whether it's a dialect or not, and whether or not, you know, because it wasn't their native tongue, the 
Native Americans were speaking Pigeon English. Yes. And that, you know, it's I feel like that innately kind of reduces the intelligence. The perceived intelligence. The perceived yeah. intelligence mm-hmm. of the characters. It does seem interesting that, like, Matt's life is so, so very well researched and written, mm-hmm. but that appears not to be the case for the for the tribe. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I do know um, just from some of the... Um, some of the things I've read and some um, some research sessions that I've been to, I know it can be incredibly difficult to research Native American lineage and genealogy, especially for a tribe that clearly like disappeared from the region. So I, I you know, I know it can be difficult to find resources, um, you know, trusted resources, but you know, there is something to me that's upsetting. That a white, a decorated white author researches the pioneer life um, and gets that absolutely correct, um, and then kind of makes up the tribe, like the tribal life. Yeah, especially since like that is clearly her focus. Like, well, not completely her focus, but like Calico Captive is completely about the relationship between a settler family and. A Native American tribe. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like it's her only time writing about this. Mm-hmm. Although there's, that's problematic in its own ways. <laughs> um, that is a lot more negative, that story. I think as we go on, we're going to learn everything we liked as children is wrong. <laughs> and we I, should burn it all down. I'm but so scared <laughs> for when we talk about Laura Ingalls Wilder. <laughs> I know that there are things that I really enjoyed as a kid. I just didn't, I didn't know. And I think in in the context of kind of cultural norms, you know, being two white people, living in white families, growing up in whiteness, uh, those things were just not introduced to us in the 80s. No, we had no idea. Um, And now as we've gotten older, we try our best to be educated. We try our best to see what we can see and, you know, give an authentic... um, read of something but I know that you know still make missteps and that's you know we can do our, the best we can and yeah. um I don't know it's tricky it's it well it, it can be tricky especially I think this is not just a story about a tribe so it's hard to discount it entirely um because obviously the historical inaccuracies of just the story of one tribe would be, you know, you can't at all use that right. as something. Um, and the other option too is to not write a story at all, which I always struggle with because obviously it's not her story to tell, you know, but if nobody writes that story, then nobody is talking about what mm-hmm. happened at all. And she clearly had good intentions, and it just seems like the choice between being wrong in the way that you tell your story or like being silent about an injustice, mm-hmm. which clearly like them ga- getting run out of the country is, is yeah. a big injustice. And the way that people saw them back then and sometimes even now is another injustice. But like in talking about something like that, you're always going to get some things wrong. I feel better about where we're moving to as far as children's literature goes. Oh, definitely. Um, because I, I feel 
like there actually are native writers. Joseph Prukak and um, Cynthia Lytic Smith, and um, there's just there's a lot more out there. Um, and I'll I'll also link to a resource called Oyate Oyate. I'm so sorry, <laughs> I know I've mangled it. Um, that have um, recommended reading lists as well as Debbie Reese's blog. Um, so you can you can find enormous amounts of wonderful um, Native American literature through those links. But I think the push for diverse books, diverse authors, yes, um, research, sensitivity readers, which I know are can be a hot button topic. Um, I think that they're not censorship. I think it's it's good if you were writing about a group that you were not a part of. You want somebody to to check and make sure. I mean, ignorance is no excuse, basically. No. And so if you can have somebody check for that for you, yeah. <laughs> why not? Because who wants to be hurtful, right. right? Like if you are writing a book, you want to hopefully, I would say 95% of people that are writing <laughs> these books, they want the story to be meaningful to the reader. So if half their readership, you know, a certain percentage of the readership is offended and alienated, that doesn't do any good. No, it doesn't. Especially when the point of a story like this is empathy. Like the entire point yeah. is empathy. So I think that this is historically accurate, definitely for the pioneer stuff. Mm-hmm. And partially, partially for the tribe. Yeah. It's just not... If you, if you look at it, I, I, can, I can definitely say that, agree with you, if you look at the Native Americans through the lens that Matt would have had. Yes. The very limited ignorant lens um, and not knowing that there's differences between tribes and not knowing, you know, the names for people and. Right. And I think, you know, they go into so much about him overcoming various biases Mm -hmm. that I think that it's fair to start from that perspective. Yeah. I still don't think I would hand it to a kid unless I could like have actual discussions with that kid as they read. <laughs> well, I, I would, honestly. I, I like this book. Like, it's so readable and it's so interesting and it's so well written. And they, in in so many ways, like, show him realizing that his perspectives were wrong. Mm-hmm. That I think that even though she gets some things wrong, it's still a really worthwhile story mm-hmm. for me. I mean, yeah. I would, personally, I would recommend it. I have recommended it to people. Mm-hmm. Especially if they have an interest in that genre yeah I would um yeah I would want to be a balloon hovering over their head (laughs) to just be like okay so let's let's talk about some some resources that we can (laughs) can compare and contrast As much as I liked the portrayal, the detailed portrayal of pioneer life, and I felt like that worked well, I did think that Matt was not very interesting. Oh yeah, he was just he was just there. Yeah, he was just there. And but I mean, most honestly, most twelve-year-old boys are not that interesting. I guess, yeah. Um, and his mom, dude. His mom. Oh, that was the ending was not so happy. The ending is very sad. Spoiler from what? What is it? Twenty? 
24 years ago. No. 34. 34. 34 years. We're old. We're old. Not the first or last time you will hear that refrain <laughs> on this podcast. Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah, at the beginning of the book, they're waiting for... The whole point is that the father has left him there to go pick up the mom and the little sister because the mom was about to have a baby. And when they come back, the baby just died. And that's... I mean, I guess I can see where she's coming from because that is historically accurate. Mm -hmm. But... The part that got me was the mom was like, just strap me to a sled and push me toward the cabin. It does not matter how long it takes. We must not leave Matt alone. And and like, she's the most solemn lady. And she's just like laying on a sled being pushed through the woods. It's just so sad. Yeah. And it just seems like uh, at, at the end of the book where it should be a little bit triumphant that he made it through all of this. Um you shouldn't get such a bummer of an ending. Yeah, but it feels right. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it feels right that it's all just kind of sad, and you're in the woods, and you're dirty. and uh, Here's some corn. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have uh, read-alikes and read-betters. If you'd like to start, yeah. Um, so to start off with all of the rest of Elizabeth George Spears' books, um, this I would have to say is my third favorite out of the four. Um, my least favorite being The Bronze Bow from 1961. Um, I love Calico Captive from 1957 and The Witch of Blackbird Pond from 1958. Um, also problematic in their own ways, but um, just really enjoyable stories just to read. Mm-hmm. Um, the lady could write. Yeah, boy, she could. <laughs> um, and then my other one, just um, in terms of sort of the survival aspect and the and the being in the woods and using what you could to get by, would have to be um, Gary Paulson's Hatchet, which also won the Newbery in 1987. Um, with kind of a similarly aged boy on his own um, trying to get by, and and that seemed like. Here's a really uh, realistic feeling, a day-to-day life survival story. Mm-hmm. Um, so in honor of the dancing sequence <laughs> <laughs> that Matt was very confused by, but also excited <laughs> by. Um, and who could blame him? <laughs> um, I, uh, I chose actually Jingle Dancer by Cynthia Lytic-Smith, and it's illustrated by Cornelius Van Wright and Ying Hua Hu. It was published in 2000. Um, It's a beautiful uh, middle grade picture book about a young girl who wants to be a jingle dancer and about how she she gets uh, bells from different people in her life that she can sew on her dress and um, she can participate in the... um, the big jingle, the the big, um, sorry, she can participate in the big dance. I want to know. <laughs> Had me at big jingle. That sounds like fun. Oh, it's <laughs> it's a beautiful book. Um, it's very realistic illustrations, and um, it has really good historical notes in the back, hmm. and it just it shows, um, it shows the characters as just right, you know, just modern people, um, and they participate in this tradition. 
And it's a really neat book. I like that it has notes. I feel like one thing that this book would benefit from would be sources in the back or, yeah. or night notes as to, like, I wouldn't know that it was based on a true story had I not looked it up. Yeah. Like, I would have loved to know more about what actually happened. Yeah, where she got it from mm-hmm. and um, what, more of her process behind it. But um, I, I think there actually is a note like that in the back of Calico Captive. Okay. Explaining what happened to the family okay. afterward. Yeah. Um, and then as far as our cocktail slash snack regimen, um, this time we made Johnny Cakes since they talk about cornbread um, so much in this book. And obviously um, both the settlers and the Native Americans have it. We decided to go with um, an authentic snack. Yeah. Um, the recipe will be in the show notes. Um, and I found a website called what's cookinamerica.net. They have a very uh, simple recipe for Johnny cakes and there's a whole history that they have there that we'll link to, but I thought it would would be interesting for you guys to hear the other names that Johnny cakes are known by. Um, it's a regional, it's a regional thing. So depending on where you were in the United States, they could be Johnny Cakes, one word, Johnny Cakes, two words, Ash Cake, Batter Cake, Corn Cake, Corn Pone, Hoe Cake, Journey Cake, Mush Bread, Pone, Jonikin, and John, well, Jonikin. Jonikin. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Um, I think you should just admit that you like to say Corn Pone. I just want to say Pone a bunch. <laughs> Pone. You get more Southern the more you say it. <laughs> I know. I, I have a very Amy Sedaris uh, drunk voice. <laughs> like, if I drink, I start getting more and more Amy Sedaris. Do you start making crafts out of like marshmallows and toothpicks? Well, I do that sober, so it <laughs> doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's, yeah. Um, uh, so they actually were really good, and we had them with molasses, just like he, um, just like Matt did. In the book. In the book. Um, we tried them with butter um, and with, some honey, which blueberry honey and honeycomb. Yeah, and uh, my favorite was definitely the honey. I really, really liked the blueberry honey on that. That, yeah, was, that was really good. Delicious. Very excited that Marcy <laughs> had that. Um, a tip: if you do make them, um, make sure do not squish them down to a fourth of an inch until you flipped them once. It gets real messy. Real fast. (laughs) But (laughs) they were delicious. mm -hmm. And um, so that's it. And next up, we're with Dear Mr. Henshaw, which will be our last book. And we'll also talk about um, other books that were published that year. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.